Hello, dearest patrons. Welcome back to another Reading Club. I'm Alex Hochuli. Uh, I'm here with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare. Uh, today's Saturday, the 24th of October, and I'm going to hand you over to, uh, to Black Philip, uh, the goat of Beelzebub, to explain what this one's about, because uh, this is his bag here. So over to you, Phil. Thank you. Thanks for the racist introduction as well. <laughs> it's not racist. But people, listeners should watch The Witch if they haven't. It is a great film. That is a great film. And um, there are worse things to be called than Black Philip off the back of the um, off the back of the film. So um, the material for the Reading Club this week, listeners, patrons, is a little bit beyond our usual fare. So for starters, it's a book. And that's uh, longer than what we usually propose for the Reading Club. And it's also more philosophical than the usual um, themes that we deal with. Despite its length of being book length and its complexity, we were taken with it, sufficient, or sufficiently taken with it and with the argument of the book that we decided to do it in any case. We're also happy to say that we're having the author on, the author of the book, Todd McGowan, is coming on in a few weeks' time. So we'll be able to pursue some of these themes further. Um, he's coming on as just as a, one of our regular guests. Now, despite the book being more philosophical than our usual fare, um, we think it is uh, useful and politically even even politically important in some in some significant ways, not least because it's a book that tries to summarize and extend and wring out some of the political implications of Slavoj Žižek's um, epochal reinterpretation of um, uh, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, the renowned, notorious even 19th century philosopher of German idealism. Um, who was also famously a significant and perhaps even the most significant influence in Karl Marx. So if nothing else, for those listeners who are familiar with or curious about what Zizek is about, this book is an excellent, lucid and concise summary of Zizek's ideas in a way that the man himself has never actually achieved. Now, what's significant about Hegel, um, among other things, is the place that he gives to freedom in his philosophy by comparison to other philosophers and that he embeds freedom so deeply into the, into the structure of his philosophy. And so that the question of freedom is not purely restricted to the realm of politics. And so this has significant implications for how he understands the role of um, freedom in human life and human affairs. And I thought it would be useful if each of us started just by very briefly summarizing what we think is so remarkable about the book so maybe if we start with you alex yeah thanks um harsh on slavoy i thought there phil but uh, harsh but fair most likely um and i think that is one of the things that i would highlight uh that it is able to kind of synthesize uh, a lot of what zizek does without the uh excursions that uh slavoy zizek often takes in fact he makes use of uh cinematic uh, metaphors and, and explanations um, as a way to kind of clarify things, whereas Zizek sometimes can can get lost in them. So, I mean, it's much more systematic a presentation, I think, than Zizek. So I think that is to its credit. Um, I can't really speak to how accurate McGowan's interpretation of Hegel is, but I'm happy to take it as read. Um, I think two things that I would highlight in terms of what the book achieves, which are really useful. One is that it hammers this point home about all being being contradiction. Um, about it all being being contradictory, um, not just thought being um, in its logical um, sense being contradictory, but that it's that being itself is, is contradictory. And it's something that if you're 
a Marxist, I think you'll probably have an, perhaps in it, you should have at least an intuitive grasp of, um, in talking about kind of social contradictions. Um, but he really brings that home and is able to kind of unfurl that argument in a number of different ways. One of the ways which for me was most evocative was, uh, the chapter two where he explains that Hegel could have much better explained what he meant by contradiction without this extremely complicated language if he had access to what Freud discovered, Freud's discovery of the unconscious. Um, you know, Freud writing a century later than, than Hegel, but actually, uh, he, Freud is the, is a real kind of passageway to Hegel in a way. Um, and I thought that was fascinating and presented what Hegel was arguing in a much more intuitive fashion, because I think it's, I think it's, I personally at least think it's more intuitive, uh, to understand these things through psychoanalysis, through an understanding of the self itself as divided, um, of an unconscious, uh, and its desires that work sometimes against our conscious desires. Um, you know, you can take whatever example you might want, but, uh, you know, for example, the way that you might push your, the harder you push yourself to achieve something, the more you procrastinate, you know, so all these are, or the, the ways that, um, you end up sabotaging yourself constantly. I think that's something that most people will have encountered. And, and that's a, an intuitive notion of contradiction at the very core of, of the subject of your being. Um, and if you can accept that, then why not accept that the rest of the world is contradictory too? George, what about yourself? Yeah, so maybe <clears throat> three things quickly that I thought were so, were, were so good about the book. Um, although I think taken as a whole, there are some some problems with it that we'll certainly come to. The first thing is this point about contradiction. It's a, it's a, the unpacking that McGowan does and the explanation is really gets at why this is such a, a radical idea, such a an important one as well. I mean, the idea that there's no positional thesis that is stable in and of itself um, and that contradiction drives the subject moves moves history forward um, is a yeah as Alex said a really important idea for for, um, for any Marxist or for really for anyone I guess second thing is I think um, it the book really alights on a, a an incredibly important problem or task that we have um, as a left in terms of how to constitute authority um how to not how to get over the trauma of our own freedom how to accept the reality of our freedom and you know what what to do about it how to to uh, what the challenge really is um the historic challenge of, of constructing some sort of political authority and then the third point which i think is again you know it's probably linked to the to the first two um is it does it does force you to to discard any quite simplistic ideas of communism as a harmonious society. Um, and, I'm, and I know this is something we're going to be explicitly discussing, but the idea that there is still obviously contradiction, there is still um, forward movement that communism is the end of the prehistory of uh, humanity, not the end of history. Um, I think that's, that's something else that I took from the book. For me, I mean, I suppose um, to underscore what uh, Alex and George have already said, the notion that being is contradiction is um, uh, unwound in a, he uh, is done just so uh, impressively and um, without the usual kind of um, excruciating uh, footwork that, you know, you would encounter, say, in, um, in philosophical texts. It's done very succinctly and effectively. And the implications are tremendous um, because essentially what uh, McGowan is putting across um, in terms of this um, Jujekian interpretation of Hegel is that the 
there is no substantial um, opposition to the agency of uh, the subject of humanity to human freedom, that there is no external monolithic um, force against which um, we uh, can, which forms a basis against which we cannot, which undermines or thwarts human freedom, I think. So I've not expressed that very well, but hopefully it'll become clearer in the in the course of the discussion. Um, but essentially that the, the human freedom itself is rooted in the fact that um, being itself is being itself is um, internally inconsistent. So um, this is, I think, um, one of the most kind of um, profound insights that um, McGowan can offer us, and the political implications of it are very significant, and um, hopefully they'll come across in the course of our discussion today. But before we go, before we, um, before we get in any further, um, I thought it would be useful to set it up because um, I'm sure many, many of our listeners, uh, seasoned leftists or perhaps even unseasoned leftists um, and people who've been around or thought about issues on the left will know that there is a uh, relationship which is usually posited between Marx and Hegel. And I thought it'd be useful to summarize um, just as a kind of uh, starting point to enter into the wider discussion. And um, who would be better to do this for us than our own resident um, doctor of philosophy from Oxford University, no less. So over to you, George. Tell us about wow, the thanks. relationship between Marx and Hegel. Yeah, thank you for that, that warm school, school, uh, the unseasoned, school the unseasoned leftists. Bring that salt and pepper. Yeah, <laughs> this, this, this is the scientific socialist, socialism bit. Concentrate. Um, no, I'm not going to go on at, at great length on this. I think, though, it is... It is useful to just to just frame this and make sure we're all on the same all on the same page. Um, and I think pretty much every every Marxist has a has a take hot takes in in some cases of the relationship between Marx and Hegel. Um, but yeah, the idea I think is it's commonly accepted. Marx takes the finds the rational kernel in the mystical shell of Hegel, so the dialectical method, um, and turns Hegel on his head. Proceeds from earth to heaven. Um, rather than vice versa, because he's a materialist and not an idealist. So the central thing at the uh, which drives the dialectic forward instead of being the idea is instead the materialist conception of history, the economic circumstances in which we um, find ourselves. And I think this is, you know, this is a, a fairly sort of standard uh, Marxism 101 account, perhaps, but is often supplemented with a couple of other ideas. One that Hegel is essentially a thesis, antithesis, synthesis, thinker so everything is is found in in quite straightforward threes and that that kind of synth synthesis that Alf, Alf moment um you know you want to you want to discard those kind of simplistic ideas um so yeah and and then another another kind of I guess interpretation that all of this leads to um is that Hegel is essentially a conservative thinker he was concerned to justify the Prussian constitutional monarchy of the day he was um, looking to say that the actual is rational. So essentially what exists is an embodiment. And in fact, the the, the, the uppermost embodiment of, of reason. So I think you, you junk him, basically. I could have just said that. This is the kind of the, the straightforward take is that Marx got everything that was um, living in Hegel and the rest of it you can kind of 
put in the um, the recycling bin of history. So, um, yeah, thanks, George. Neatly done. And I think, I mean, you know, that's familiar to people who have um, encountered um, some of this politics and thought at some point or other. So what I wanted just before we get stuck into the meat of the discussion, I suppose I just wanted to draw a bit out about this idea of what it means for um, uh, the relationship between freedom and the contradictory nature of being. And if I may um, digress and do my own kind of Dijakian hot take by which I combine um, German idealism and popular filmic references or references yeah. to popular culture. If you I could, um, if you I could also kind of plead combine my some cane in there, up, up the <laughs> up the energy level through the roof. Well, I'm some, trying some to. Business. I'm trying to. Uh, I'm hopefully eliciting uh, our listeners' sympathies for it. So, um, but the usual problem for understanding the nature of freedom is um, that it's taken, how do you really, if you believe in materialism, if you're a materialist, and you believe that there is such a thing as causal determination, which, you know, as sensible secularists should, then how do you account for the reality of um, freedom? And so the German liberal, the great liberal philosopher Kant said famously that um, it's something you have to assume. There is no specific instance in which you can identify um, freedom as a separate um a chain of events separate from causal determination and therefore we have we know that it exists so we have to assume that it exists but it's this kind of ethereal substance this um ineffable um stuff which is left over outside of a fully determined mechanical universe and what mcgowan explains very effectively is that hegel's response to this is to suggest that it is the mechanical universe itself that the what is problematic about that um, picture is that the mechanical universe itself is inconsistent, and so in fact that freedom is nothing but the internal inconsistency of that determined causal universe. So freedom is not some ethereal stuff which kind of floats floats above the world of um, causation and the world of um, determined universe, but is actually within it itself. And that, in fact, freedom is nothing but the internal contradictions of that machine. So the ghost in the machine is, in fact, the nothing but the malfunctioning, if you will, um, or the internal inconsistency of the machine. And the best way, I think, to to kind of illustrate this, and again, hopefully this, um, hopefully the listeners will uh, be sympathetic to this, but it's from the first season of Westworld. And we've talked about Westworld before on the show. Um, it's a, I mean, it's a enormously, uh, we, we love the show. And spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about the ending of the show to try and illustrate the point. Um, so what's great about the show and what's great about how it kind of plays out this story about the nature of human freedom is, as everyone knows, and the, the show is about this um, uh, this um, Wild West theme park um, set in the near future where the rich degenerates um, go in order to play out all of their depraved sexual and um, violent fantasies with androids who you can do whatever you want to because they're completely wiped every night. Their memories are wiped. Um, you can abuse their bodies and um, their identities as much as you want for the human guests within the theme park because they're just androids. They're not human. Um, they have no feelings. They have no agency. They have no freedom. And the series, the first, at least the first season of Westworld is talking about how um, obviously things start to go wrong. But what's so great about it 
is that it's consistently kept ambivalent about what's happening in the park as the machines begin to start revolting against the human guests. Is it that the machines have been programmed to revolt by the builder of the theme park, who's played by Anthony Hopkins in the show? Is it that the machines are just malfunctioning? The constant series of breakdowns and being constantly repaired has left all sorts of glitches in the computerized system. Or is it that they're becoming consciously self-conscious aware and are they becoming autonomous and free? And the way in which that story plays out over the course of the first season is not only kind of testimony to um, what a fantastic TV show it is, but also it um, explores these themes, precisely what is the nature of um, human agency as opposed to causation. And it's right at the end of the show that he's that um, we're, we're, we're shown, the viewer is shown that it is in fact that the robots and the androids have um, become free and that they've emancipated themselves. They've broken out of the, um, of the loops through which the mechanical loops through which they're controlled by their programmers, the algorithms, and that instead that they are able to act autonomously. And there's one scene in particular where Thandie Newton's character, Thandie Newton plays one of the robots. She's escaped the park and she's about um, disguised as a human guest. She's about to escape the theme park where she's been tormented um, and so brutally mistreated. And right up to the very end, it's still unclear whether or not she was programmed to revolt and to try and escape, whether she is just a long kind of glitchy malfunctioning Android. And the moment that it turns out that she actually makes a choice and is actually free is when she decides to go back into the park. So just as on the brink, what it seems to be on the brink of her freedom and her, of her escape from the park, she actively chooses to go back into it to rescue her daughter, even though she knows that the daughter in the park is a fake memory, something that was implanted by the programmers in order to manipulate her emotional responses more effectively. But even though she knows that the memory is fake, she chooses to act on it as if it were real. And in choosing to act on it as if it were real, she makes it real. And her love for her daughter is turned into actuality because she makes she acts on the on a conscious choice that she makes. So as a, a long and um, somewhat convoluted take, hopefully in the style of the great um, Slovenian himself, um, but hopefully it illustrates the point about um, the complex relationship between choice, freedom, and determination, and how freedom emerges from the, from the internal contradictions of determination itself. Huh, that was very good, yeah, thanks very for, useful. Yeah, um, thanks, for, thanks for spoiling that. I think... Uh, <laughs> You've seen it, what are you talking about? I know, I know. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a show which is obviously consciously uh, about some of these of these questions, and I think that's probably the the most interesting narrative thread. So, yeah, cool. All right, all right let's jump in. So um, the first thing we wanted to talk about was history and freedom. And we wanted to do something slightly different for um, for this uh, for this episode, which is to draw out some of the quotes um, and to talk about them with a bit of depth. So I'm going to read out a quote from the McGowan, page 135, and then we'll talk about it. So the first is, this is the quote, history is the arena in which we discover the contradictions that strip the authority from figures of authority. Each discovery frees the subject from its investment in the authority until there are no more figures of authority left. Even the subject's own natural inclinations suffer from contradiction, which disqualifies them from any authoritative status over the subject. This absence of any authority, either external or internal, 
bespeaks for Hegel the subject's freedom. The free subjects relates to the figure of authority as a fellow being divided by contradiction rather than as a self-identical substance. The authority is just another subject, not a self-identical being elevated above the subject. So this summarizes, um, this quote summarizes some of what we've just been uh, uh, anticipating. Um, but uh, I suppose what we, the question for us is how far this is a effective summary of the process of history and indeed of the end of history. Because what it seems to be saying is that modern politics begins when history ends effectively. So that history is the process of discovering that there is no substantial basis for authority over the human subject, um, whether that be the authority of the emperor, um, the Roman emperor or the Chinese emperor, whether it be the authority of nature, whether it be the authority of, um, of God or gods, that all of these figures of authority, we collectively discover their insufficiency, the fact that they're internally inconsistent and contradictory. And at the end of it, we're only left with the um, reality of our own freedom, effectively. What do you guys think? So as a way of answering that, I think it might just be worth clarifying a couple of things that are mentioned there before going on to answer the, the kind of way that Phil put it, the question that Phil put to us. Um, one is that, I mean, I guess for people who won't have read the book, maybe, um, then, but who are listening along anyway, um, welcome. Thank you for doing that. Uh, it's the, the notion of a self-identical subject, I think, is, is important. It's where... Uh, McGowan starts off in explaining the, the nature of, of contradiction in being, which is the idea that a birch, he uses the example of a birch tree. A birch tree is not just a birch tree. You can't just say birch tree equals birch tree. Um, that would be a self-identical subject, something that is, has, is, is substantial in and of itself. A birch tree can only be defined by um, what by the fact that there are things which are not birch trees. Um, there are other types of trees and that there's a whole other universe outside of the birch tree. And so the definition of the birch tree contains both birch tree and everything that isn't birch tree. So there's a, a contradiction within um, that very identity. And so the argument proceeds from there that everything, um, that everything has this uh, kind of contradictory being. Now, what doesn't have a contradictory being is this, I, what we would should call pre-modern authority. Uh, pre-modern here because the end of history that we're talking about here, Hegel's end of history, is not the usual alpha bunga bunga end of history that we refer to. Uh, the end of history here is the 1789 end of history. It's the end of um, the old forms of authority, of divine, divinely ordained authority, for example, uh, replaced by, which then came to be replaced by secular authority, which, the argument goes, has to be founded on freedom. Um, unfortunately, it often is not. Um, and hasn't been, you know, since Hegel wrote, uh, you can, if you're, you know, listening to this, or you were reading along, you think, well, but there's a whole bunch of other forms of authority that exist in even in our times, uh, let alone in the kind of the 19th century, um, which are still seemed big, substantial authorities, uh, the the family, the, fa the father figure, uh, the church still. So there were these other forms of, of authority which seem substantial and which are not at all rooted in in, in, in freedom. They're rooted in, in domination and indeed claims to represent some, um, yeah, maybe some divinely ordained uh, system. Um, so I think that's what's, so that's what's tricky about this. And I think one of the analogies that McGowan uses to kind of explain out how this works is uh, again a kind of Freudian one, where they, where a child, for example, 
a child will see their father as being this sort of unquestioned authority. Um, when their father sees a child, when the, excuse me, when the child sees their father hurt or embarrassed, you know, the father trips over and hurts himself or whatever, suddenly they're no longer seen as this substantial other, this sort of infallible figure. They're seen as contradictory themselves. And yet they remain, a, the, they remain an authority. Just because the child has seen the, the father humiliated doesn't mean that the father is no longer the father. He's still an authority. And I think that kind of captures the nature of modern authority. Um, where it's no longer this the this relationship between a uh, young child and, and the supreme father, um, but is this father who's been kind of taken down a peg, and yet he remains the father, and that's the nature of, of modern authority. So maybe that's a good place to get started on this. Thanks, Alex. It sounds like there's some real issues there driving that right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing. That's really helpful. Um, <laughs> Dad, yeah, <laughs> Daddy issues via Hegel. Uh, anyway, George. <laughs> So, I mean, this is that's one sort of construction of the Marx Hegel relationship. Um, not one I think it's particularly useful to subscribe to, but yeah, no, I think I think I, you know, I won't talk for very long because not not that much to add to, to Alex's. I think that's a very clear presentation, but yeah, I mean, just to just to make the simple point, the French Revolution and the revolution in Haiti in San Saint Domingue, as it was at that point, uh, announced the end of traditional authority. Um, and from that point on, the, the question of what the basis of political life is takes on a whole new form. Earthly authority loses divine support, divine authority loses the ability to dictate the terms of our existence. And then that point that Alex made comes in. From then on, authority is subject to the same split that the subject is. And so mm -hmm. that's, you know, kind of in, I think, um, McGowan get us right. It's, it's kind of traumatic in a way, because you don't have this um, absolute, clear, authoritative way that is determining the way you have to live your life and the way you have to structure your society. And so things are thrown open. And that radical openness is quite, um, you know, it's quite scary because you could do anything. And though McGowan doesn't do this, but I think it's consistent with what he says, and it's uh, certainly a Bunga theme, is that the, the notion of national sovereignty is crucial here because... It, is that a is that a bunga theme? Uh, I think so. We haven't because, done a series on that. <laughs> no, we never mentioned sovereignty at all on this show. But so for those who are, um, uh, you know, I think what I mean, what forces freedom to the to the fore into so the king is executed, the church is um, overthrown in terms of its um, significance in national life in France. A constitutional secular republic is established and um, subsequently um, a monarchy, but not one with divine sanction. Um, Napoleon famously crowns himself. But the um, uh, what in the in the constitutional structure it's the people who are at the center um the same people who um erected the republic and overthrew the old order are the same people who are in charge and so it's this circularity um the fact that there is no ability to evade um the uh the uh, freedom which is institutionalized in the idea of sovereignty that the people have to decide for themselves what they're going to do and the process through which the people decide is in fact the will of the collective will of the sovereign so the um the in making the people at the core of political decision making um through the achievement of um of sovereignty of secular politics of legal equality of all citizens this is the way in which freedom is institutionalized in the at the end of history uh, by hegel's own account in which um all other 
pre-modern forms of inherited traditional authority have been debased and overthrown. So if we move on to, and this touches upon what Alex was already gesturing towards, um, the question of politics and freedom. I'm going to read out another quote now, which is um, from page 150 in McGowan's book. Um, I should say that um, some of the questions we, by which we're talking about these came from an earlier discussion that we had among some friends. So we're grateful to we're grateful to um, having had the opportunity to thrash out some of these ideas. And hopefully you know who you are if you were part of that. Yeah, if you're listening, you. you know who you are. We thank you. We're going to leave you anonymous. We're going to um, steal all your best points. Steal your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Essentially, yes. We're going to do all of that. We're not going to. We're not going to name you, but we have given you. We have given you a secret wink, so you've seen it. Um, okay. So here's the quote: "What we have witnessed in Sagal's death has been a desperate search to erect a new authority that would avoid God's humiliation, an attempt to avoid recognizing God as contradictory and confronting the freedom that this implies." This turn toward authority is not a rebirth of history, but rather a neurotic response to its end. And this idea of God's humiliation is very important, both in Zizek's account of the history of ideas and in McGowan's, and what it's referring to is the crucifixion. So the importance of Christianity to um, the history of Christianity to informing the modern world, uh, the suffering God, the God who dies on the cross is um, and the God who's humiliated and mocked and tortured by the Roman soldiers is crucial to setting humanity free, um, to allowing humanity to emerge from the overwhelming terror of this external authority of God. So the question for us is, or for you guys anyway, um, is McGowan right when he identifies naturalism and fundamentalism as the two contemporary forms of external authority seeking? So what we mean by this is McGowan has said in the quote about how we've always tried to find these substitute figures of authority for the authorities that we've lost. And this is essentially neurotic, these attempts to throw up these different kinds of um, authority. And there's two, McGowan says there are two neurotic responses to the end of authority. One is naturalism and one is fundamentalism. So could one of you guys maybe explain what McGowan means by these and then tell us um, if he's identified them correctly? Yeah, just just to jump in and not to answer your question, but just to go back to the the quote, um, what we've witnessed since Hegel's death has been a desperate search uh, to erect a new authority. It does kind of sound like Hegel was the old authority. Um, might just be a slip of uh, a Freudian slip from from McGowan that he was uh, that Hegel was the um, <clears throat> the authority at that point that needs to be needs to be replaced. Mm, very, um, very but no, I just thought I would throw that in there. Yeah. Um, I think naturalism and, and fundamentalism, I, I thought that was quite evocative and I was trying to think whether there were any other categories and I failed. Um, so I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with naturalism and fundamentalism so being, so yeah, naturalism would be, um, a way of attributing to, um, impersonal forces, uh, some, some sort of authority, um, and treating them as, as natural. So, I mean, probably the most obvious one would be a way of treating, for example, of creating a, a, an authority out of Gaia, out of some, out of Mother Earth or something like that, um, against whom we transgress uh, and who will punish us for it. So this sort of um, creating, creating a sort of deity out of nature and seeing, for example, climate change um, being net nature's retribution for, um, for our transgressions in having industrialized. Um, that's quite a crude portrayal, um, but I think that's one version. I think the more sophisticated and the, and the one that's far more common and more problematic, um, because not everyone's a deep green like that, uh, is 
naturalizing the market. The idea that, for example, um, social outcomes, poverty, for example, uh, is a natural product of the market and that that's the kind of authority that we need to follow, that we can't then try to, for example, use the state uh, to redress inequalities because that would be to transgress against God market. Uh, fundamentalism, I think there it's, you know, tr- trying to rebuild a form of religious authority, uh, especially um, trying to create a, um, yeah, sort of a, a, a vengeful, well, I don't know, that's not the right way to put it at all, actually. It's trying to recreate tradition in an era in which tradition has already right. been destroyed. So fundamentalism in that sense, the idea to recreate traditional kind of relations of obedience, um, to divine supernatural authority in a context in which it's simply um, social structure, um, our collective knowledge of the world, ourselves and the universe, it's in none of it fits. And so it has this um, neurotic kind of hysterical character, the extreme uh, modes of behavior, the violence, the irrationalism, the um, ostentation, the ways of um, the need to say dress in burkas, burkas in um, Western in Western states, um, the um, kind of uh, or indeed say the behavior of um, uh, Christians in the U.S. fundamentalist well, or, Christians and, and, the and, the contra- and the and the contradiction and the contradictions of it of using um, global communications network to try to bring the world back to 11th century Arabia, for example, or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think. Are there I any others? The, are there any yeah. Others well, fundamentalism. Actually, as we were discussing it. Yeah. Go on, George. Yeah. No, as we were discussing it, I was thinking um, that both of these two approaches they they share the sort of the same formulation a justification for things because they're absolutely necessary i mean the natural or or the 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 recourse to nature it's quite clear you know natural's not in it it's no it's a it's a way to to pass on to um the natural world something which is our responsibility which is our which is our choice Choice, collective choice and and you know fundamentalism has the same structure it's you know it's 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 absolutely necessary to for things to to work in this way because otherwise otherwise they will fall apart i don't know i think the i think they are the two main main routes that i can that you could see what is it that's that comes to stand in i guess for humanity for our own kind of collective free choice um in terms of you know what what the end of politics is um yeah i can't think of another one i think i mean so i'd say naturalism i think we're living through one of them at the moment right particularly in i mean i think in very important ways in britain um with what the science says to do say in respect of corona and this has been very visible with um with the tory government how it um appeared in at the end of 2019 to have such a strong um invigorated democratic mandate to um, a populist mandate. It was the people's Brexit, the people's this, the people's that. It seemed like a tremendously strong kind of political um, charge with a um, could that could claim and rally um, the voters, the electorate, the population behind it. And very quickly, um, they collapsed into SAGE, which is the scientific advisory group, um, which has become kind of one of the most prominent decision-making centers of authority um, within the British state in the wake of the um, pandemic. And um, the way in which the British government has authorized its kind of um, shambolic 
and haphazard decision-making over the last few months has been by reference to the science. This is what the science says. And thrust forward these kind of um, civil servant scientists into effectively having to make political decisions on the basis of the authority of science rather than on the basis of um, elected officials. So I think, I mean, you know, there is the... There are other, we're living through a period in which there is this um, uh, attempt to, this neurotic attempt to find a source of authority in order to guide us through um, and the emergency of the pandemic. And so it's striking, I mean, it's so, it's so obviously visible, um, particularly in the UK, like I say, because you have this contrast between what seemed to be a strong political authority in the form of a, a reinvigorated um, Tory majority, and the technocratic, technocratic scientific um, bureaucrats to whom authority now, with whom authority now resides. Okay, I, so- I agree with that, but I think there's another, there's a more unexpected and perhaps ironic way of reconstituting authority today, a neurotic um, evasion of the reality of our freedom. Um, it's not natural. That isn't naturalism or fundamentalism. That isn't naturalism or fundamentalism, or maybe you'll find that you can fit it into those categories after I've said what I have to say, uh, but. You know, I think when you have an authority, you always have that idea. I think the more intuitive, obvious one is someone will save me, right? If I fuck up, if I transgress, someone will save me. But there's the other way of reconstituting authority, which is that if I fuck up or if I transgress, someone will punish me. And there's a comfort in that. There's there's knowing that that there's still that... Uh, you know, kind we of parent- back your daddy issues. <laughs> there's still the parental look, but it, it Freud was right. It explains it right um, that there's still this parental authority who will punish you, and there's a comfort in knowing that that you know, hand on your <laughs> hand on your ass is going to, that's weird. Um, <laughs> the spanking that you're going to get, you know, <laughs> right. tells you that there's still a substantial authority there. Okay, I was just joking for <laughs> but now I'm beginning to wonder. Let me, let me, let me, let me continue, right? So the way that uh, authority is, is reconstituted, albeit negatively, in the sense that it's anti-authoritarians who reconstituted authority, is by saying, well, look at, look at me, I am now uh, identifying as non-binary and, uh, you know, asexual and uh, whatever, poly, polyamorous and blah, 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 um, and expecting authority to come and tell you that's not allowed. Um, but the authority isn't there because it's just the market. Um, and the market actually, if anything, encourages that, you know, go and see, um, construct an identity through through your consumption. Um, that's entirely allowed. And I think it's even more clear um, in contemporary liberal anti-racism and a, a kind of whatever it is now, fourth wave feminism, um, which tries to reconstitute white supremacy or patriarchy as this authority so that it can combat it, or rather so that it has something to combat, it elevates, uh, it, it creates a notion that white supremacy is still with us um, in, you know, whatever the US or the UK today, um, as a way of uh, of having that kind of old authority to, to fight against, as if there's this yeah. authority which is rooted in something other than just the market. And it's like, well, ultimately, that's not there. I mean, while there might be expressions of racism and, uh, you know, misogyny here and there, um, which there undoubtedly are, yeah, the that doesn't mean that the, 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 the source of contemporary authority in the state is patriarchy or white supremacy. It is not. Yeah. Um, and so the, those liberals who try to are trying to fight against that are, are in themselves hoping for the old comfort of, uh, of the spanking that they get um, for transgressing against it. But it's not coming. That spanking isn't there. It's also, it strikes me kind of just as you were talking, there is another example of the, um, the 
kind of appeal to external authority. And that is very visible in my own kind of um, field of academic expertise of humanitarian intervention. So the appeal to the international community and ultimately to the Americans to intervene. Um, and very different to kind of a very different structure of struggle and a struggle for freedom than in the past. So in the past, where you'd have kind of the classic kind of image of third world national liberation was to achieve national independence against um, an external oppressor. In the current condition, the model of um, the model of uh, rebellion is essentially neurotic. So um, conducting rebellion in order to invoke the external authority of NATO or the United Nations in order to um, intervene on your behalf to defend your human rights for you against the external oppressor. And so I think the um, they clearly are then. I mean, we've already come up with kind of um, other examples of uh, external authority seeking that don't fit into um, that don't fit into um, McGowan's naturalism and fundamentalism, and we should explore them in greater detail. Um, just very quickly, um, before we get into the next part, it just occurs to me that, that this is why I think the American election is potentially so important, is because um, if it is contested, um, if it does end up being messy, which doesn't look like it at the moment, given Biden's poll lead, but let's say if it does end up being messy, legally challenged, disputed, if Trump is um, appears to be um, reluctant to leave the White House and there's grumbling from the deep state and the security apparatus about what they might do or might have to do and threats of disorder and whatever, what have you, I think that will shred that image of American authority as being at the core of world order. Um, so if there is another type of external authority, um, the idea mm. that the Americans are there to save us, that American authority is there to help us when we screw up, that the Americans are there to spank us, the Americans are there to provide us with Daddy money. Sam. I, uh, yeah, quite so. Um, they're oh, there to bomb us grief. or to provide us with our human rights or to provide us with our money if we um, you know, kind of need to be bailed out. Um, the Fed will be there or um, the American army will be there. And if the core of American political authority becomes contested, then I think that figure of external authority will will end as well. And it'll be shown the fact that we vested our authority and it will be shown to be just another example of this um, neurotic search for an external authority that allows us to avoid making our own choices for ourselves. And this gets us, I guess, to what Alex was saying, which is the left or what we were both saying, I was talking about it with relationship to third world liberation, and Alex was talking about it with relation to um, left forms of uh, anti-authoritarianism anti of today. Um, and the, this quote, so let's talk about freedom and the left and how McGowan helps us to understand them. And the, this quote is from page 172. So here we go. If one wants freedom, one must discover what happens when there are no external authorities left to fight when the external authorities appear as the mark of our freedom rather than as an obstacle to it. One must denounce, but one must not remain content with just denouncing. The freedom to denounce fails to see that it remains caught up in what it denounces, whereas the freedom that identifies its own limit in the external authority reaches the point of self-determination. So what does this imply for a leftist approach to politics and the state? What do you think, George? I think you've been you've been a bit quiet. You've been a bit intimidated by Alex talking about his dad. So you tell us. So, <laughs> no, I think this is the probably the central point of of the book in some ways, or the central lesson that it can teach us, which is all that we should take from it. Which is that I think this is this is absolutely true that the 
the contemporary left is content with resisting authority rather than attempting to create a new authority rather than attempting to and that is you know that is um an erotic process because rather than attempting to recognize i guess that the the authority already exists potentially not actually but potentially in all of us um in our collective ability to control the world and to make decisions unless that's grasped unless that nettle is is grasped and that is a difficult thing to to own up to because it's a massive um obligation or a massive demand on us to, to do something about that until we get to that stage it's going to be a continual process of of looking for external authorities to um to resist and that's and that's a uh, not a progressive emancipatory political um project so and i think that putting it in terms of authority i think is is probably I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm thinking maybe that that's what listeners are thinking is that, you know, are we really defending the idea of authority? Um, and I think, yeah, this is an important thing that the left needs to um, accept that it, there is a lack of authority and it should be put in those, those terms. Um, it is about a power that is, that is justified and that we see ourselves um, as constituting. So authority is the right word. And this is something which, of course, is an, a term that's owned by the right, like the authority of the family, the church, you know, you you should do things, you know, we, you know, you, you have to behave in this way or that way. That's what political authority is generally tend, um, accepted to mean. But actually, if you if you flip it on its head or you see what the possibilities for creating political authority are, then you can see that this is a this is a major um, gap in in the way that the contemporary left is, you know, to generalize is approaching politics. I, I, just a, a short point that I think that that shows what a disaster both Stalinism and the reaction to Stalinism, as in the 1960s anti-authoritarian revolt, uh, of which we're still, of which were the children still, I think, very much. Um, what a disaster that was, because it's a it's a flight from authority. It's a it's an it's a it's choosing to remain within denunciation. Um, that's what the, that's what politics that's what politics has been, especially left wing politics has been since the 1960s, just denunciation. Um, you know, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Um, but they're not telling you what to do. All they have is power. And I think that's the difference. And that's something that uh, is worth clarifying. What we're saying here, I think, is not a kind of voluntaristic, all you have to do is go and seize power for yourself because, you know, you can do it. We have the freedom. Um, you know, the emperor has no clothes, so just go and do it. Of course not. There's a hu- the, the state it wields a huge amount of power, but it doesn't have authority. And I think that's an important distinction um, that, it, that we have to bring in. Um, it doesn't mean and that, that means, st- it, 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 yeah, it, yeah. It, I mean, there will be a confrontation, and the state might completely annihilate you. That's obviously, <laughs> that's still, that's obviously very possible. Um, and and you know, but that doesn't mean that we should be looking to the state as an authority against which we should be defining ourselves. I think, and I think that's the way maybe that that it needs to be looked at. And it's very, it's very clear that no one's in control. That there are various if you take for example the response to brexit the response to coronavirus in the uk it's clear that there's no one's in control there's an absence yeah. of there the is right. an absence of of that there is various levers and policies and spending of money and attempts to to do things but there is no control and that is a it, it makes you realize how in some ways fragile fluid the contemporary political moment is we don't have this you know, right-wing fascist um, 
super state in in any context which is which is you know completely controlling us it things are so much more open um, it strikes me listening that. to listening to you both it strikes me another kind of um it also tells you something about the outrage with which trump's kind of clownish antics and his unwillingness to to act in a, what seemed to be appropriate to the dignity of the office. So this is something which so um, so exercises so many kind of liberals. Um, and I think it's that kind yeah, of because yeah. he exposes the kind of absurdity and pretension of the office itself and their, um, that he exposes the lack of authority, kind of their, their submissiveness to those, um, the trappings of authority. And this is what really enrages them when he acts, um, when he calls, he undermines the authority to which they've been, um, they've submitted themselves, but which in fact is, is no, you know, he's no different than any other president, but he just behaves slightly differently. And this is what causes them all to lose their minds. Um, so it's again, I think it kind of exposes the that question of the um, external authority, the kind of the technocratic, the smooth Harvard Mandarin like Obama. You know, that's um, that is another form of um, taking comfort in the authority of the um, the lawyer and the technocrat who tells you these are the rules, this is what you've got to do, this is what the experts have told us, and what the judges say. And that is another form of that um, external authority seeking. Okay, but let's move on um, to. Uh, because this kind of this question of the anti-authoritarian instincts of the left and how that has um, led us nowhere since the 1960s, at least, goes to the question of fascism and resistance, because McGowan talks about this as well. And this is um, so I'm going to read out another quote. This quote is from page 207. Fascism has an appeal rooted not just in its act of preserving contradiction, but also in its transformation of contradiction into opposition. It turns contradiction in the disguised and more palatable form of opposition, the German, German against Jew, American against immigrant, and so on. It has its origin in the tendency of parliamentary democracy to repress contradiction. Subjects will seek it out in the form of fascism if parliamentary democracy represses it. This is what we have seen play out throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. And as an addition to that, um, he says, another quote, Zizek recognizes the image of a substantial state is the primary political danger that we confront today. And that quote is from page 209. So I suppose um, there's a couple of things here. Uh, what is this idea of substantial, of a substantial vision of society from which fascism draws its, um, its uh, kind of uh, vision of social order from? Is his account of the relationship between parliamentary and democracy and fascism uh, convincing? Um, is his account of the origin of fascism plausible? And is he right about this idea of the substantial state being a primary political danger? Well, three questions in one there. So <coughs> I will. So you go. Ahead. I will. I will answer all of them um, with. While I'm answering none of them, I'll answer all of them by reference to something which isn't actually in what you uh, asked. Um, I think this is probably the the part of the book that I I found the, the least convincing um, or the most most problematic because the the idea is essentially that that parliamentary democracy cannot handle contradiction, and this and so therefore 
it opens a question as to what is the political what is a Hegelian political project or what is the political project that comes out of the book and it's one where you're just trying to open up as many spaces for for contradiction to to express itself um, as possible but it's it's precisely democracy which is the form that society has to uh, manage if you want to put it in five dollar words to mediate its own contradictions that there is a um, a space and a process through which that we've been talking about authority, that political authority is constituted. Um, and to say that that's fascist, that is um, very, uh, that's very, yeah, that's very, very, um, I was going to say simplistic, but it's not simplistic. It's just completely wrong headed. It's, it is um, mistaking the form of fascism and it's mistaking the possibility of, of democracy. And, and therefore he... the possibility of political authority. Okay, but um, putting to one side, so he says parliamentary democracy, by which I guess he means kind of the liberal democracies we're familiar with in the Western world, repress contradiction. And so subjects seek it out in the form of fascism if parlamentary democracy represses it. So I think it Parliamentary looks, um, democracy doesn't repress it. Yeah, That's well, it's, point. no, no, I, sure. I, I, think he's, I think he's half right there. Parliamentary democracy bourgeois democracy does repress contradiction. I mean, it, there's certain things that it it does not just uh, represent society's interest in a um, in a sort of naked and direct fashion. Uh, if you try to completely socialize investment or, you know, um, socialize all private property through bourgeois democracy, that wouldn't be allowed, that contradiction. There's certain things that uh, parliamentary democracy is set up to to prevent. Right. I mean, that's why that would be the argument for any revolutionary socialism. But then it's not. But then the contradiction remains. It's not then being repressed. Well, I think it I think it um, it would remain. Well, no, it's being repressed. I mean, it's not being represented through the institutions. Right. There's a social contradiction. There's a social contradiction there about um, the socialization of production. And let's roll back. So let's. So what is this idea of a substantial state? So the idea is so he's talking about fascism here that it transforms kind of the um, contra- internal contradictions of society into opposition. So opposition against an external enemy, an immigrant, or um, the kind of uh, uh, paradigm of the Jew in fascism. So what is this idea of a substantial society? Mm, a substantial society, I guess, would be the, for example, in the fascist vision, an organic society, a society that is self-identical, that doesn't yeah. have any contradictions, doesn't have... Is, you know, it's the pure Christian white civilization, which doesn't have the Jew corrupting it or, you know, in what, what, whatever version you want to have it. Um, so and he says, so I think that's right. So that's the substantial vision of a society which is purged of internal contradiction, um, which and it does this by trans, transforming contradiction into opposition. And he says the this emerges from the tendency of parliamentary democracy to repress contradiction, but he doesn't say capitalism. He says parliamentary democracy. So the idea of representative democracy in its effort to repress contradiction, and I'm not quite sure what he might mean by that, but it will in fact lay the ground for for fascism. And he says, this is what we see play out through the 20th and 21st centuries. And I'm not- So I, 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 I read this in a, in a particular throwing way- Throwing out the baby with the bathwater there. Well, yeah, possibly, but I also read this you know, maybe being sympathetic to him, or at least trying to interpret it in ways that make sense to me, is that if we if we take parliamentary democracy there to mean specifically the contemporary form of parliamentary democracy, which is to say post politics, which is a way of governing which depoliticizes 
conflict and um, brings it all kind of in-house, as it were, right? It, and uh, tries to um, do away with popular sovereignty in in the interest of kind of back backroom deals and so on with maintaining purely the formal facade of democracy, right? So that's post-politics. Post-politics repress, there very much does repress uh, contradiction um, that there, for example, the idea that there might be differing social interests within society, that society itself is conflictual. What post-politics says is we're all in it together. We just need to find the the scientifically based best way to administer society, i.e. maybe neoclassical economics or, um, you know, whatever the science says that you should be doing um, and implement that. And we just need the best people to implement it, right? So post-politics and technocracy assumes a non-contradictory society. Um, in repressing that contradiction, you get outbursts like, for example, populism. And populism, which says, fuck you, uh, you're, that's you, and this is us, right? The, the, the people are united and the, the elite are against us. That is one way of introducing contradiction, of saying that there's a contradiction between state or the state bureaucracy and society. So I think that that way makes sense. Populism and fascism together. Then. But they, but exactly, and I think that's where I think that's where his error is, and is an error amongst many leftists. I think not just leftists, um, liberals as well, uh, to conflate right populism and and fascism, and to, and they're actually fundamentally different beasts. Yeah, and then it's also saying it's also I think uh, you you have a very very generous reading of um, what he means by modern parliamentary democracy. Because that's the that's the the promise or the appeal or the formal character of parliamentary democracy, is that different social groups, contradictory interests, contradictions in society are represented, and are able to you know to maintain themselves precisely through this process of 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 <laughs> agreement or um, political um, processes which happen in 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 parliament. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I think the, I guess the question becomes why you know what is the importance of having fascism or having an anti-fascist um, um, plank to the argument or an anti-fascist conclusion, because I don't think um, that's not my reading of Hegel that that's essentially the the um, the political import um, of his of his thought. I guess the. <clears throat> Yeah, I think that's that. You know, the the fit between this kind of reading of Hegel and contemporary left liberal politics gives me sort of pause for thought um, in terms of the the way in which some of the earlier concepts in the book, particularly around contradiction and authority, how they are kind of unpacked into the political uh, sphere. So um, one of the uh, one of or McGowan criticizes Marxism in all of this picture. So um, though his sympathies are clearly on the left, he criticizes Marxism on the grounds that it seeks to equally seeks to repress contradiction, and that um, when Marx draws a veil over the shape of the future society, what he's doing is he's setting up. Um, much as everything, all the others we've been criticizing, according to McGowan, he's setting up an image of a future harmonious, substantial vision that could serve as the basis for authority. And according to McGowan, it is precisely this um, mysterious, uh, this mysterious harmony, harmonious society of the future, which has led us to all the cataclysmic outcomes of Marxist politics in the 20th century, um, investing authority in the figures of um, the leader, such as Stalin or the uh, the party as the central vehicle of all of historical progress and change or history itself. 
and he attributes this these um, these misplaced attributions of authority. He attributes this to Marx's own theoretical um, flaw, according to him, of not um, providing any image of the future society and trying to repress contradiction in this um, in the future communist harmony, a society which, according to McGowan, is a society without contradiction. So here's what he says, quote, the problem with Marx's solution is that it is a solution. Rather than revealing the irreducibility of contradiction within economics, Marx's fantasy depicts the contradictions on this terrain as soluble. Ironically, this fantasy of a non-contradictory alternative evinces the same problem that Marx identifies in capitalism. It cannot recognize that it creates its own barriers despite eschewing them. The fantasy of an alternative that would solve contradiction remains within the logic of what it contests. This is from pages 211 to 212. So is McGowan right that Marx's vision of communism is a vision of a harmonious society that represses precisely what, it's, um, what it claims to be opposed in, uh, or that reproduces what it claims to be opposed to? Well, I think obviously not. And this is the, the great limitation of the book is how his reading of Hegel can be so generative, so interesting. And then the reading of Marx is so um, so limited and simplistic. And actually, I think kind of a bit lazy, this idea that communism is harmony and it's fine and everything's solved. I think that is, it's it's not, yeah, it's, it's strange. It's, it, it, it's makes me almost think that the reading of Hegel must be a little bit less good than I thought um, because the, the the kind of this idea that yeah the Marx thought that all contradictions not just the historically specific contradictions to capitalism are solved under communism I don't think there's many people who think that and that's that kind of lazy you know communism is like Christianity um, you know you just you just solve all the problems in heaven you solve all the problems in in under communism and you basically you just need to get there and you need to have the second coming or revolution and that that doesn't follow the the structure or the 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 pattern of Marx's thought, I think, really at all. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's a weird kind of anti-communism, which I, which I guess is a bit surprising to me. Funnily, maybe anti-communist, but not actually the anti-Marxist. You know, anyway. But I, I think what what the the way to see it, I think, is that you know, contra- that that communism takes contradiction onto a, a, another level, right? That there would still be contradiction but that uh, these things would be played out in a different way that they would not be played out um, in economic contradictions but that you might have um, contradictions over I mean that not that, that there would still be a con- that there would still be contradiction there which would act as an engine of, of of society towards greater freedom but that it might take place on on a different plane um, in a world where scarcity scarcity has been has been uh, conquered so all the contradictions ensuing from from scarcity and wealth um, have been superseded um, and replaced by other other ones so you might have conflict over status um, but not over wealth or something like that um, though I, I think the one place where well, he is you, sorry just just one one quick thing just I was just gonna say and we'll still have obviously conflicts with your dad you know so you will have conflicts <laughs> with your dad still so uh, and the communism that's just the cheapest anti-freudianism uh, anyway <laughs> um, I, one place where I think he might be correct and it's not in this quote but in reference to Marx I mean correct I no, I don't agree but he, at least he's on firmer ground I think at least in his reading is that Marx 
treats communism as a beyond, an, unknow- an unknowable beyond. You know, it doesn't want to build castles in the sky, write blueprints, and so on. Hegel, uh, excuse me, McGowan, um, in discussing how Hegel sees Kant, Hegel's critique of Kant is precisely that Kant leaves all these things in the beyond unknowable. He limits what is possible by, uh, uh, is um, reachable by human reason. Um, and according to according to McGowan's Hegel, we should be able to see what is in communism. We should be able to reason out what that communism w- would entail. And I think that's where yeah. he's uh, makes a sharper. I, it's kind of point. a damned, yeah. but it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because you know, if he accuses, so he charges Marx with not specifying what the future society looks like, which allows it to act as this substantial um, pseudo authority to justify all these horrors. But if Marx had detailed um, what the society looked like, then it, he would also, he would presumably could still say the same thing, that it would be so substantial. This is the kind of um, future society, this um, fully stable kind of non-contradictory future society to which everything must be um, compelled to to align with. So, you know, it doesn't seem to me like the, it seems to me the criticism would exist irrespective of what Marx actually says. Um, but, yeah, I said I said earlier that um, communism is the end of the prehistory of mankind, and I think that's the. It, I think Marx does about, specify women, to speci- Mark does Marx does specify to to sufficient extent what communism would look like. You have a certain set of historically specific contradictions, which are those around um, class. Those are no longer present, but you still have all the other things which make up the contradictory nature of freedom, which are then able to develop. And then, and that's, you know, that's why it's, there's, it's pointless to say, let's have the, the rest, you know, the recipes, the castles in the sky, all this stuff, because the, the, the quality of the freedom will be entirely different. Um, but it will certainly be a, uh, um, a society with a, with a, with a very different um, sort of basis because you won't have that class division anymore. I mean, in some ways, it's a bit like, you know, arguing about what communism is going to look like is, you know, it's good to fill up some minutes on a on a podcast. But is it the you know, it's not a it's not a central political um, task, really, I don't think. Um, OK, let's move on to list. I was going to say something there, but I won't. Let's move on to listener questions. So um, we've got we got, um, as you might expect, given the. Um, you know, given the quality of the book and um, the uh, complexity of some of the arguments, we got some fairly, um, we got some fairly, when we got some really excellent questions and some fairly involved ones. We're, I'm not sure we'll be able to do all of them justice, but we'll do our best. So um, one question we got um, was uh, this, so it was specifically with reference to um, how McGowan understands um, the nature of human agency, this human subject. So the the listener asks, I understand the distinction between subjects and material things in the world, but I do not understand why the subject is, quote, the victim of itself. Does this simply mean that the subject must pay for its infinity by succumbing to the contradiction that constitutes it, i.e. by dying? Is the subject not still then a victim of being rather than of itself? So my take on this is that the, the subject is the victim of itself because it is because I think by the the nature of being a subject is to be to internalize contradiction by being self-aware of it, conscious of it, conscious of the fact that um, we are um, contradictory, that we're inconsistent. 
And so this is what it means for the subject to be a victim of itself. Um, and indeed that you succumb to, you succumb in the end to death. And so I think it's that that makes it the idea because it's your, it's your self-awareness of your own contradiction um, that makes you a victim of yourself rather than simply um, collapsing into the, um, the wider kind of, uh, the wider order of being as it were. Um, there's another question, which uh, another question from, I should add, we incorporated, um, we incorporated some of the questions that we received into the answers we've already given. So there's inevitably some pick and choose here. Um, uh, so a follow-on question was, um, uh, this is from the listener. McGowan explains that ultimate freedom is only possible when negation manifests itself in a positive form. It is not, however, the task of the philosopher who can only paint his or her gray and gray to formulate this positive form of negation. The philosopher's sole task is to dismantle the forms the substantial other takes as they arise. McGowan urges us to take comfort in the knowledge that despite widespread aversion to freedom, the latter will continue to loom on the horizon. So what they mean there is that the um, that these, const these attempts to erect substantial external authorities will continue to crumble, and it is the task of the philosoph of philosophers to expedite this process of overturning these external forms of authority that would um, deny or thwart um, the basis of human freedom. So what do people think? Uh, it just, just briefly on that, I mean, yeah, I think the important thing there is, the, is that last line there um, about the philosopher's role, the philosopher's task is to dismantle the forms of the substantial other. Um, here, in you know, throughout the book, he, he tries to argue against, and this is a real shocking claim that he makes, you know, against Thesis 11, against uh, the, the 11th thesis on Feuerbach, uh, saying that, you know, no, the philosophers, you know, the philosophers should just, uh, you know, interpret the world, they shouldn't try to change it, uh, that the philosopher's role is precisely just to show that, in this case specifically, that the emperor has no clothes. Uh, the, the role of the philosopher is not to uh, pull the lever on the guillotine, uh, it's just to say that the emperor has no clothes. Um, and I think that's something that one can see in kind of Zizek's work often with his evasion of putting forward solutions. Because people also often go, you know, to, 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 to Big G, uh, Big Zizek and say, you know, well, what do you propose we do? He's like, no, this is not my role. I'm, what, all I'm showing you is, is, is the contradictions that are there and showing you in some cases, you know, that authority has no, has no pants. Um, so I think that's a, a kind of pretty severe reinterpretation of what Marx inaugurated thenceforth in saying that no philosophers do have an active role in, in politics. So there's another, um, so we've got another question here, which is linked to what we've earlier been talking about with anti-fascism. The listener says, as I already mentioned in a comment under the post, I would have liked if in the recent episode on anti-fascism, you had further discussed the continued relevance or present irrelevance of smashing the skulls of phrenologists, page 191. Um, so this, um, the episode on anti-fascism is um, one that we did for patrons uh, where we talked to David Broder on the history of um, fascism and anti-fascism in Europe. Um, and the listener here is talking about, so he's talking about that episode as well as um, the uh, Hegel's critique of phrenology, um, which was uh, divining people's character and personality um, from the shape of their skulls, the um, uh, pseudoscience of the 19th century. Um, could somebody explain the links to us and answer the listener's question? Well, I think basically, you know, the correlate, I think, would be to say that there is no 
way to reason through uh, an, an argument with a phrenologist or, you know, a racist um, because they assume a kind of, they assume a self-identical being in which an essence is manifest in the body of the person, right? So that your uh, imbecility, for example, manifests in a certain skull shape. Um, and that Hegel's response to this is that you can only really prove them otherwise um, by smashing their skull in, because there you prove that, in fact, what is manifest in your skull uh, it, it does not show your essence, because you suddenly have a caved-in skull. Does that mean who, that you are a caved-in person? Um, this is a way of kind of showing that all beings are, are contradictory, that you can't just read off, um, you know, someone's essence via their, their physical features. Um, or, you know, if you're to take it today, you could say that, no, you know, you can't read skin color off. You know, you'd have to skin a racist um, to, that would be the only way to argue against them. Well, there you go. There's, there's the, there's the analogy right there. I think, yeah. I think that probably answers it very effectively. So that's, um, that's taking it into the 20th century. 21st century, hopefully. Well, uh, no, 20, 20, 20th century. No, hopefully we're, we're getting past that. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Finally, um, or, uh, nearly finally, uh, we've got an, uh, another question, which is about the, um, goes back to this issue of uh, what is the character of contradiction in society and its political role and purpose. So the listener asks, according to McGowan, the state is for Hegel a social structure that sustains contradiction, page 202. This seems to be in direct opposition to Lenin's claim that the state is a tool of domination wielded by one class against another, not a structure that can sustain their contradiction. Was the bourgeois state ever anything but a handmaiden for the forces of capitalism? Page 205. Um, I'll feel, I'll try tackling this one, feel this one. Um, I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. And indeed, one of the things that's most striking about Lenin's politics in the aftermath of the revolution is precisely his consistent um, attention to the fact that the Soviet, the early Soviet state was itself contradictory an alliance of um, workers and poor peasants. And he was extremely uh, sensitive to the fact that that alliance could only um, sustain itself if it um, could keep the political, um, could uh, rely on the political support of the middle layers of the peasantry. In addition to that, famously, I mean, you know, he was opposed to the militarization of the labor unions, which is what um, Trotsky wanted to do, incorporating the labor unions into the state effectively, which would be much closer to a kind of a fully um, integrated state and society. And so Lenin was um, fiercely opposed to that, precisely because he saw that the need for the state, the representative agency, to be separate from the body of society itself. And also the... Um, you know, towards the end of his life, he was also seeking to establish a so-called control commission that would have supervisory oversight as a way of checking the um, power of the bureaucracy. So an agency of the state that would, uh, the state would become more um, internally divided as a way of diluting its power effectively, um, a kind of Soviet system of checks and balances, if you will. So and it's only to say that I don't that I think um, the there is no within Lenin's politics or understanding of the state in the post-Soviet state. It's um, he does understand it as a political tool for ensuring the domination of his particular class. But at the same time, it's not separate from the fact that it fulfills certain uh, representative functions. Um, in its relationship to society, and indeed that it um, uh, sustains contradiction in, very, in sharp contrast to the Stalinist vision 
of um, society, which was entirely monolithic. And that's the transition to the idea of the people, capital P, in place of um, the idea of uh, society, which was still riven with um, different classes, with different, con- with different interests that had to be mediated through the state in Lenin's vision of post-Soviet society. Um, okay, let's do one more. So we've got one more question, which um, let's uh, try and cover it. Um, and this question is, how does McGowan propose we reconcile his new reading of Hegel with a Marxist analysis of capitalism, given that this analysis is then, according to him, based on a misreading of Hegel? So this goes back to what we were chatting about, McGowan's um, McGowan's uh, criticisms of Marx and Marxism. So he's sympathetic to the left. He's sympathetic to Marx's account of capitalism. But at the same time, he says that Marxism is based on a misreading of Hegel. How do we tie that? How do we uh, tie that up? Well, I think it's a question of of what this um, <clears throat> this reading of Hegel can can give us um, can give can give the Marxist project. I don't think it's the, the I don't think Hegel is the primary political thinker. I know this is what what McGowan does does assert, but I think that's I, I just don't think that's that's correct. And I think there are some there are some some challenges in trying to take forward some of this some of the Hegelian content. This idea that the, I guess that the structure that that freedom comes from the structure of being, which is something which I think is a plausible reading of of Hegel. I I think this is an this is a in some ways a dangerous point and one that should be rejected because it isn't the case that these ideas these ideals of freedom and equality. Um, solidarity come from the structure of being rather their political choices and I think this is the the really important point that we have um, we have that that same political task which is 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 that of um, I guess comprehending and then seizing seizing freedom Um, so I think and that is a you know that is a point that I think both both Marx and Hegel share or give different inflections um, two, um, so I think there is, a, you know, there is a continuity as b- between the two thinkers in terms of the political project that I would would advocate. But I don't think it's a case of of kind of displacing any of the um, the previous tenets of of Marxism with some new Hegelian ones. Um, this, I'm not sure I agree with that, but maybe we can pick that up at a different um, at a different point. Um, Okay, um, well, I think we can leave it there. Um, and um, thanks to our listeners for the questions. And indeed, the um, uh, you know the, we've not been able to do justice to all of them and some really some, some fantastic, sophisticated questions. Thanks for uh, reading the book with us. And we hope that you um, enjoyed it as much as we did. And like I said, we'll be revisiting this in short order because we're happy to say we're going to have Todd McGowan on. If you have any questions stemming off the back, if you do manage to read this book subsequently, if you've not done it already, or you have questions which you'd like us to try and put to him uh, we can't promise we'll do all of them but we're going to try and put some listener questions to him so do send them in if you like um through the usual routes email us or through the patron send them through the patron account otherwise i think we can um we can leave it there for this uh for this episode for this uh, reading club episode yeah just to add that uh we'll be discussing with mcgowan in the middle of november so if you want to get any questions in for him by then please do so. And then uh, the next reading club coming up will be at the very end of November, uh, beginning of, actually very early beginning of December. We'll be discussing Christopher Lash's uh, The Culture of Narcissism, trying to reevaluate that. Um, so again, if you want to send in your questions for that, please, uh, we'd be delighted to have them. Thanks very much. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.